Ready or not, here I come. Yeah, some of you are excited, some of you are like, let's just go, because we've got to eat today. So, let's jump right in. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. As we've continued in this, and we're continuing to focus on this main part here is that we're talking about the identity we have in Christ. We're almost through this section, then we're going to go to the final section of this, of what do we do with this. Because learning about it is one thing, but how you put this into practice in real life is a whole other thing. And the truth of the matter is, is we've talked about this. The church today is under a spell of deception, unlike anything I've seen. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, it says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here's the thing. If you are in the flesh, according to Romans here, can you please God? No. And what does it mean to be in the flesh? Well, it's the carnal mind versus the spiritual mind. So this isn't necessarily talking about somebody who is born again, but it, it can be. The thing that we've got to understand here is when we talk about the carnal mind, we're not just talking about moral things. That is important. But it is how we approach things. It's how we look at things. It's the world of which we, how we, I guess, filter everything through. Because if it's not biblical, then it doesn't matter. And when we talk about this, there are things that are biblical that are very clear, and there are things that are anti-biblical that are very clear. And then there's a gray area where it's kind of like, it's not unbiblical. But the Bible doesn't necessarily condone it or, and or doesn't necessarily encourage it. Like, here's some for you. Did you guys realize that potato chips is found nowhere in the Bible? But we all know they were given to us by God, right? Email, cars, things like that are not unbiblical. They are abiblical. It doesn't talk about them. So the thing is, is we've got to keep that in mind. How we filter the stuff that we see matters. Because when we hear something, see something, do something, a thought comes to our mind, we have to approach this like, what does God say about this? Do you guys realize how inconvenient it is to be a born-again believer today? Any day, not just today. It's not like we got it that bad, let's just be honest. You know, nobody's coming and knocking on your door trying to kill you yet. Give them time. It's not convenient, and that's not why we're believers. Do you realize that if this was just something, some practice that we picked up, we would just drop it? Because it's way easier to believe something different that goes with the culture, that goes around the world, that, that has this filter on that just says, hey, if it feels good, do it. You see, we've got to be spiritually minded, which means we need to be biblically minded, which means we have to filter everything through that. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, it says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. I beg to you, I am present, I, am not bold, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You guys realize that this passage is true, yet not practiced? Think about that. There's a lot of things that we say are true, but not practiced. In this case, this is true that the statements that are made, but we don't walk as if this is going on. We walk as if we're not in the middle of a battle. That every day that we are on this earth, every day we wake up, have breath in our lungs that we are not at battle. We act like that. You know why? Because we are lethargic. You see, you think about it. Go back to a time of which you weren't given a paycheck. And I say you as in mankind. 
every day you had to get up and every day you had to find food to survive. Did you sleep in? Did you get up like, oh, I think I'll read a book first? No, because you have a certain amount of time that you can go without food before there are dire consequences. And because of that, it forces you to not be lazy. But here we are. We live in a society of which I don't care who you are, you make more money than you need to live in most of the parts of the world. And I don't care who you are, we live really comfortably in this country. I saw something a while back that if you own one car, regardless of how nice it is, you are richer than 48% of the world. And we have multiple cars. And we kind of take the idea for granted. Because you know what happens when the old car breaks? Go get you a new one. 0% APR, baby. Let's go. I mean, this is the world we live in. But we take that for granted. Do you guys realize that when these guys give a motorcycle away to a ministry in some part of the world, what a big deal that is for them? And here, if any of us want a motorcycle today, we could go and leave today with one. Well, maybe not today because, you know, there's a shortage of everything. But under normal circumstances. And not even bat an eye. And you can get every bell and whistle on there. Do they make a motorcycle with heated handles? Of course they do. Why wouldn't they? I wish they'd make a motorcycle that had four wheels, a cab, and closing it with heat and air and probably a Diet Coke dispenser. That would be wonderful. They have parts of that. It's called a car. That's why I don't drive a motorcycle. I mean, but that's the thing is that we do not think. We're so ungrateful for what we have, and this is how we treat God. We're like, okay, this is God, and I want him somewhere in my life but not leading my life. I don't want him uh, to just tell me what to do. So therefore, I'll go with whatever is convenient in the moment. We will make box, uh, soapbox stands on certain things, but as soon as it's inconvenient, we're like, well, I'm just going to do it this once. God will understand the same thing. So we're going to pinch that incense. God will understand. We've got a family to take care of. So we've talked about this idea here of who is God and who I am in relationship to God and how I worship God and who my enemy is. We've talked about that. We've been in this idea of who my enemy is, and we got this idea of spiritual warfare. It's as if Jesus and Satan are somehow battling. Here's the thing. That's not what's happening. Jesus battled Satan. He defeated Satan. You and I, we are battling the enemy. Not Jesus. He's already taken care of it. He's given us everything that we needed. And so to get that, we had to understand, well, where does he attack? In Ephesians 6, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's the methods of which he attacks. And according to Ephesians 6, that he has given us all these things, this armor, to stand our ground, to not succumb to the attacks of the enemy. So it is up to you. When you are attacked, how you respond is your problem. Is it not? Have you ever wondered how some people can go through the exact same trial and one comes out basically unscathed, and another one, it just train wrecks them. Why is that? It's because one person knows where they are, and another person doesn't do what is very clear. Put on the whole armor of God. It is your responsibility and duty to do so. So when we talked about this enemy attacking, where does he attack? We said there are three groups. The individual first, then it goes into a group setting. We're going to talk about that today. And then it goes to an area, and we're going to talk about that in two weeks. The individual is the first where he comes in and he attacks your mind. He gives you bad ideas. You know where he starts? With your ego. He makes you think you are worth more than what you are. Now, don't misunderstand that. But he makes you think that you know more, or you, that you are in a better position than somebody else, or whatever. It always starts with ego. 
As I said, you want to know how egotistical you are? Look at a group photo. Where's the first place you look? You want to see how you look, right? At that point, who cares? It's too late. If you were ugly, for the rest of time, that's how you look that day. That's all we know. You see, so we start there, but then it gets in this group. Well, how does that work? How does an individual, deceived person, have any impact in a group setting? We're going to look at that today. So put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We're not just talking about believers. This is unbelievers alike. And so in order to do that, we're going to transition. I'm going to show you an example of this in Scripture. I'm going to show you a group setting in which these people had a tremendous impact. They were deceived big time. And it's had a lasting impact in the world we live today since that time. Now, you can transition this into any group you want. In fact, we were just talking about this last week. Is how you see how these ideas have crept into traditionally conservative groups, i.e. like the Boy Scouts. Are the Boy Scouts today what some of you experienced when you were children? No. They're, they're unrecognizable. In fact, you know what you have to be to be a Boy Scout? Not just a boy anymore. They have Girl Scouts, but that's not good enough. The girls should be in there with the boys. I mean, they've transformed. The Assemblies of God Church came this close to splitting a few years ago. You know what the number one reason for that was? Alcohol. The Assemblies of God has traditionally had a prohibition against alcohol, especially for their ministers. And there's a young group in there today that's saying, hey, that's perfectly okay, and we should be able to do this and all of that. And it was literally going to split the oldest charismatic denomination over something so minor. Now, you can stand on whichever side of the aisle you want, but here's the question. If you believe something is okay, which is contrary to the beliefs of the group that you're trying to be a part of, why not go start your own group? Why change this one? We don't think about that. Those are little ideas. We just saw something come out about the Salvation Army, which is ironic because Jim and I, who he's down in Texas today, Jim and I were just talking about that. I said, you know, it's funny. I said, I always notice that these groups start to transform here as they go on. I said, has any of that happened with the Salvation Army? He's like, no, nothing I've seen. The next day, literally the next day, out pops this whole thing. And I thought, man, I had literally told him, I said, it's surprising they've been immune to this. Well, apparently they have it. So what happens? Well, individual or a group of individuals get into a position of power and begin to influence whatever that group is. So I'm going to show you this in Scripture, how this works. Now, before I do that, I've got to explain something because there's something that's coming into play today. I'm going to talk about these four Messianic miracles because one of these is a part of this teaching, and I want to make sure everybody's on the same page of what they are. So what are they? Here's the deal. There were four miracles that they believed that when Messiah came, that only he himself could perform, thus it was evidence that he was Messiah. These were the following. Number one was cleansing from leprosy. Why that? Because they believed that leprosy was given from God as a punishment to you. And only God himself could take that away. You could be healed by other matters with any other things, but not leprosy. So only God could do that. The second one was the casting out of a deaf and dumb spirit. In other words, they could not hear and they could not speak. Why does that matter? It matters because the Jewish exorcism practice at that time was one of which that they would go and they would go to the demon-possessed person and they would have to get the name. If they couldn't get the name, they couldn't cast him out or them out. So you see Jesus follow that practice when he asked for the name 
says, I am legion, for we are many. He was following a Jewish exorcism practice. The third one was the healing of somebody with a birth defect, like they were born blind. And the reason was, is they believed that either that person or their parents had sinned, and this was judgment from God for that sin. So only Messiah could heal them of that. No other way could they be healed. So only God himself could do it. And the last one was raising the dead after the third day. And you see that with Lazarus. And the reason for this one is they believe that the spirit of a man stayed with the body for three days. But after the fourth day, the decomposition had already set into the point that the spirit would leave. So only God himself could raise him after the fourth day. I've taught through all of these before. You can go back and listen to them if you want. I don't want to spend a ton of time. But they are going to come into play today. That's why I wanted to bring them up. So we're going to go to our first verse. John chapter 10, verse 10. It says, the thief comes to only to steal and to kill, kill and to destroy, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Leave this up here for a minute. Who is talking here? Well, if you have your Bible, you notice it's in red, right? Could you imagine how much time it took for a scribe to have to switch ink every time they would come back? That's a joke for some of you guys. Come on now. Try to keep up. I know it's early, but come on. This is Jesus talking. So we know why he came. Why did he come? That they may have life and have life more abundantly. But the ulterior to this is the thief comes to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. So my question to you is who is the thief? Yoli, you can't answer. Yoli knows everything. Who is the thief? Well, if you've been in church for any amount of time or you just arbitrarily have read this, the thief is the devil. Unless it's not. You see, we have believed things, and we've been taught things, and we never ask questions on these things, and we just arbitrarily believe them, and we never stop to ask the question, is that what he's talking about? So what we're going to do is I'm going to show you what I do, and, and the way that I approach this, is we're going to read this whole thing in its context. We're going to read for a little bit, I'm going to explain as we go, but I'm going to show you that this is not the devil, and I'm going to show you exactly what it is. So, if you've got your Bibles, flip over to John chapter 7. We're going to pick up the context of this. I'm going to interject here and there. John chapter 7 and verse 1. I would encourage you, if you do have your Bible, go along, underline some of this stuff, take some notes along the side. It'll help you remember this. Um, I am one that I have to keep things fresh in my mind, so I always need things to remind me. Um, ask Diana, where is she? She always tells me, she's like, make a note. She needs something for me to do. Did you make a note? And I did not. Go make a note, Chris. You're not going to remember tomorrow. Go make your note. Isn't that right, Diane? She's back there. She's like, absolutely. So, John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. And he did not want to walk into Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacle was at hand. So, first of all, who are the Jews? This is an upper echelon group. This is a group of teachers most often. The individual, I guess, what we would call your lay Jewish person, I don't know how else to describe it, your regular run-of-the-mill Jew, has no opinion in this matter. But in this case, the Jews, the higher up, are looking to kill Jesus. Now, it doesn't tell us why, it just tells us that. And he, they give us a clue. The Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. This is a marker in a time frame that is very crucial to the understanding of the context. So here's a calendar. I didn't bring my pointer, I should have, that's okay. Throw that up here. You can kind of see it. There are seven feasts that are, are uh, practiced primarily, and then you add Hanukkah and Purim and all this other stuff. 
but it's the month of Tishri down here in the bottom corner. The month of Tishri is, in, is the month of which Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, is celebrated. With this, is, this is one of the three festivals in which every able-bodied male Jew is required to go back to Jerusalem to celebrate. The other two was Passover and Pentecost. And so we know that the Feast of Tabernacles is taking on, it's also called Sukkot. And so we know that Jerusalem is going to be hopping. There's going to be a lot of people there. And so what they would do is they would go in there and for seven days they would build these little hut-looking things. They build them on the rooftop, sometimes in the street. If you ever get a chance to see pictures, it's still practiced today. Um, they miss a lot of the key points in it, but it's still practiced today. And, and it's kind of cool. And it had to do with the uh, wandering in the wilderness to remind them. It was always a reminder of what God had done for them. But there was always practices that were going on. So we now know the time frame. We are in the month of Tishri down here. So this is the time frame we're in. That Feast of Tabernacles is a clue to understanding this. So let's go on. Verse 3. Well, let's read it again. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk into Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' Feast of the Tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Now, can I stop and just interject something here? Who said this to him? Jesus' brothers. Now, I am not the smartest guy ever. No, that's Adam. Adam's the smartest guy ever. But I am a pretty simple guy. But if I read about Jesus' brothers, that implies to me that Jesus had siblings, thus Mary had other offspring. Does it not? It means she wasn't a perpetual virgin? Some of you know where I'm going. I'll just leave it at that. Verse 4, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. And so here we have something. His brothers did not believe that he was Messiah. So they're telling him, go to Judea. Get up there. That your disciples and everybody else can see what you're doing. Don't hide this. They're, they're being very sarcastic. They're trying to set him up a little bit. They're calling him out. I know siblings today don't do this, but back then, this was a common practice. All right? Verse 6, And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but the time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. And when he has said these things to him, he remained in Galilee. Now, why can the world not hate them, but can't hate Jesus? What's he saying? He's making a point. He talks about this constantly. Because you are my disciples, the world will hate you. Be prepared. They hate the truth. Fair enough? Is that still true today? Yes, we don't want truth. We want our truth. No different then than it is today. Verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. And the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? Because they knew he would be there. Why? They're supposed to be there. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now let's talk about this. Some people liked him, but there's a group of people that said he is deceiving everybody. Nobody would speak about him openly. In other words, their affirmations for him because of what? They feared whoever these Jews are. Verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast. So we now know, remember, seven days. Approximately three days, four days have passed. So about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Now this is interesting. 
What is going on there? They're after him. But he went to the temple and he began to teach. Now, this is not uncommon. Don't think he walked in as Jesus. Hey, I'm the son of God. I get to teach in the temple. Rabbi, this temple's huge. Rabbis taught in the temple all the time. They would go to different portions of it. Their disciples would follow him. People would hear him. There would be debate that would go on. This was a common practice. So this wasn't a new thing. He goes there and teaches. And what happens? Verse 15. The Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? They're shocked what they're hearing. He speaks with an authority, with a knowledge. To be a rabbi, you were taken under the wing of another rabbi and discipled for a very long period of time. And in this case, that didn't happen with Jesus. Why? He was the carpenter's boy. What did he do? He built stuff. And don't think carpenter just means wood. He built with stone and other things too. So he's the carpenter's boy. He wasn't discipled. How can he know these letters? How can he even read? Remember when we talked about how uh, they were shocked in Acts chapter 2? Because are these not Galileans? Because those people were not educated. They don't know anything. They don't speak other languages. So he is saying, they're just marveling at what he has said. Verse 16, Jesus answered and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So what is he beginning to argue? You've got to understand something. For something to be true, witness, whatever, it had to have two or maybe three witnesses. He's beginning to make the case that he is not speaking of himself. He is confirmed with the Father. He's speaking on behalf of both of them. Verse 20, the people answered said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work. And you all marvel. Now, he healed a guy on the Sabbath. That's what the work is talking about. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And yet you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. He's bringing out a conundrum. Because what is the rule of circumcision? If you're coming on Wednesday night, you learn it is the eighth day. On the eighth day, and there's reasons why, at least medically, that we have discovered since then. That may not have been God's motivation, but it does make sense. But on the eighth day, what if that happens to be the Sabbath? What do you do? Do you wait? Or do you go early? Because circumcision would be work. And he's calling this out. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, then the law of Moses should not be broken. Are you angry because I made a man completely well? This is a fair argument. This is philosophy is what's going on. This is if a tree falls in a forest type stuff, right? Let's go on, verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? So what are we seeing? This Jews is some sort of a ruler. They're beginning to question. They're like, why are they not taking him in? Maybe they know something. Verse 27, however, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Is that true? That's not true. Verse 28, and Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. 
whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him, and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? What signs are we referencing? As I've talked about these four messianic miracles. We'll get into this more in a little bit. So, they're beginning to argue. It's like, how is this not the guy? Listen to how he talks. Listen to how he teaches. Look what he's done. And they're not taking him into custody. Maybe they know something. Let's go on. Verse 32. The Pharisees, now we get specifics, heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. And Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. They're confused. Now the dispersion is ten countries where the people went when they were dispersed. And it's primarily Greek. And so they're like, well, maybe he's going up there. And maybe this is what's happening here or something. We're very confused. Now, he's not talking about that. But what do we see here? Here's the thing. The Pharisees heard the people beginning to believe in him. They're asking good questions. Is this the Messiah? The things he's saying sounds like what the Messiah would say. And the things he's doing is certainly the things that the Messiah would do. Can anybody who comes after him do more than what he has done? This has got to be him. Do you guys realize that Jesus was not the first Messiah figure to ever show up on the earth? There were several of them. There's been several since. So he's not the first. He's not the last. There'll be one really big one coming before too much longer, I think. So let's go on. Verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. The Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now here's another marker. What does that say? Can you leave that up there? On the last day, that great day of the feast. What feast are we talking about? It's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkot. This, is, again, is another marker. We know that the, this was a name for the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. But then he says, he makes a statement. Where's he at? He's in the temple. Okay? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said. So what's he going back to? The Old Covenant. Current covenant at that point. But the Old Covenant. As the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Does this seem very abstract to anybody else? Most of us have read this our entire life, and Jesus is like, oh, he's just making a point. But yet... Why here, why now, and why that? Well, the clue is found on that last day of the feast. Because what happens on the last day, the, I guess the eighth day, is the priest every day would march from the pool of Siloam with a pitcher of water. But on that last day, the high priest would go down there and they'd talk about he'd get two pictures. Sometimes it was wine, sometimes it was water, but most of the time it was water. And they would go to the altar. And he would begin to pour out water on the altar. It says, this is the living water. This implies that as he's beginning this process, that Jesus declares, I am the living water. This is a messianic claim 
that he is making. Because only God can provide living water. What is living water? Living water is water in which is moving. So it could be a river, it could be a stream, it could be underground water, it could be uh, rain. Something along, it had to be water that was moving. If it was stagnant water, it was dead water, not living water. But the way that they believed and the way that they practiced is if you had a jar of stagnant water and one raindrop hit it, it now became living water. So they believed that living water was given by God. And during this, they would read, a, it was a big public reading of Scripture that would go from Zechariah 14, they would read in conjunction with Ezekiel 47, and it would talk about how rivers of living water would flow forth from the temple, and you see that in those prophecies. And it, the Jews believed that Jerusalem was the very center of the earth, and the temple itself was the center point of all the earth where God was, because where was the presence of God? At this point, He wasn't even there. But that they believed that he was in the Holy of Holies, and from there, living water would flow, and this would enter in the Messianic age. You guys see why Jesus is making these claims? Because they're entering into the Messianic age. This is a big deal. Now, I realize that if you just read that, you don't understand it, but as you begin to study the background here and the culture and what was going on, you begin to pick up on this, because they believe that the Holy Spirit, the Jews, would only uh, pour himself out during the Messianic age. They'd seen the Spirit of God on the earth. They'd seen Him indwell or come upon people, but He would always lift. But at this point, the Holy Spirit would come and be poured out during the Messianic age. Now fast forward to Acts 2, right? You guys are starting to get this. So as He makes this claim, He is claiming to be Messiah without coming right out and saying, I am the Messiah. These are things that the Jews would pick up on. Look at verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Why did they say that? It's not profound to you and I. It's very profound to them. This is why. You guys got to ask these questions as you're reading this. Their response tells you specifically, whatever Jesus just said is far greater than this uh, very subtle understanding that we have of it. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Now why was there a division? Because what they knew about Jesus did not line up with what scripture said Messiah would come from. Does it not say he'll come from Bethlehem? He's not from Bethlehem. They didn't know. Right? Let's go on. Verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, Why have you not brought him in? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. So what he's saying is extremely profound. We glaze over this. Got to get that. The Pharisees answered him, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. So what is happening here? These officers come to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees want to know, Why haven't you brought him in? He is breaking the commandments. And they're just befuddled because nobody has ever spoken like him and they say are you also deceived have any of the rulers or the pharisees believed in him why does that matter 
Here's why. You've got to understand what's happening. There was something called the Sanhedrin, which is their equivalent to the Supreme Court today, if you will. And it was made up of the Essenes and the Herodians and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and anybody else. And different groups would be in power at different points in time. At this point in time, the Pharisees made up the largest portion of this. During the disciples' time, the, uh, uh, what's the other one? Sadducees. See? Got to think for it. The Sadducees made up the majority of it. The Sadducees did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels, stuff like that. The Pharisees were your legalists. And so what would happen is for Messiah to be declared Messiah, the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin would have to declare him as such. So what would take place is that if somebody was thought to be Messiah, well, how would he be thought that? Well, he would perform one of these miracles. The Pharisees or somebody from the Sanhedrin, but at this point probably the Pharisees, would begin to investigate. And they would follow this man around to see if the statements that they were saying were true. Did he perform one of these miracles? In order for Messiah to be declared Messiah, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin essentially had to take a vote and say, yes, here's your Messiah. That is why he said, this can't be the man because have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? And at this point, they had not. Is it because the signs weren't there? No. It's because they didn't want them to be there. So the argument is he's not Messiah because we didn't say he was. You guys see that? This is important. They're saying that you're deceived by this man claiming to be Messiah. He can't be because we didn't say he was. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Let's go to chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So where was he? He was in the temple. He goes to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came down into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Now, who did? The scribes and the Pharisees. And when they set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said this, they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down. And wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now, there's a number of things happening. Leave that up there, if you will. He went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he comes back to the temple. People came. They sit down. They listen. And what happens? Scribes and the Pharisee bring a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Do you know something about that? Is that you can't commit adultery by yourself. Where's the guy? They didn't bring him. Could be they're making the whole thing up. But at a minimum, he should have been there. Now, the law required the two or three witnesses to see this. You can't do this. But they said they brought this to him, testing him to see what he would say. Now, why is this a test against him? Is this a test against the law of Moses? If she was caught in the act, what did the law of Moses say? She should be stoned, as should the man. They should both be stoned. But it's not the law of Moses that they're trying to catch him on. It's the law of the Romans. The Roman law was as such that the Jewish people had freedom to worship God in any way they wanted to. They could worship God, they could sacrifice to God, they could live their lives, and they could practice their law any way they wanted with the exception of one thing. They could not bring capital punishment in any way. They would have to go to the Romans to get permission to bring a man, or in this case a woman, to death. So they could not arbitrarily do this. Or what would happen is the Romans would first punish those involved and secondly may lift or put restrictions upon them on how they worship. This is why they had to take 
Jesus to Pilate to get permission to execute him. You guys see that? Now, here, she's caught. They're trying to bring something against him that he goes against Rome so that Rome will execute him. But what was Jesus' response? He stooped down. He wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now, when it says as though he did not hear, implies he heard. Have you ever had your children talking nonstop and you eventually just, you just drown them out? At that point, it's just, you're just filling the air with sound. You are saying nothing. Go bother your brother or sister. Okay? We want to know, what was he writing? Let's go on. Verse 7. So, when they continued to ask him, he raised himself up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Seems a pretty simple statement. And again he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus left alone with the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? And he said, Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, let me stop. There's something powerful that's going on here. First, though, we've got to deal with something cultural that's going on here. There are bad ideas out there, folks. One of which, you see, Jesus did not condemn this woman. He loved her where she was. We don't condemn people. and We don't judge people because he didn't judge her. He loved her the way that she was. Except there's one problem. He called what she was doing sin and said, stop it. This is one of the arguments that people use for homosexuality or premarital sex or whatever they, whatever they want. They're going to twist it any way they want. These are bad ideas. But here he says, stop it. But the, the bigger question here is if we look at this, he makes a statement. It's a very simple statement. He was without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. Okay, here's the question. Do these people like Jesus? Nope. What were they trying to do? catch him so they could kill him jesus stoops to the ground begins to write eventually stands up makes that statement what's their response those who heard it being convicted by their conscience began to leave they dropped their stones and they left the question is why does that make any sense i mean if we hear a political leader who gets up that we disagree with vehemently and they begin to make some statement, are we cut to the heart by what they have said? Of course not, because we think they're idiots. And they probably are, because they're in politics. You have to be a little bit of an idiot to do that. But what was it here? They didn't like Jesus, they didn't respect Jesus, they wanted him dead. Why did they not go through with what he said? What cut them to the heart so much so that they dropped everything and left? And this is the clue. He stooped to the ground and began to write. Well, what was he writing? I've heard every bad idea out there that you can imagine. Some said he's just ignoring them and he's doodling on the ground or whatever. The question comes down to, can we find out? And the answer is, I believe, yes, we can. And the answer is found in Jeremiah chapter 17. Because if you go over to Jeremiah 17, it says in verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountains of living waters. Now, what did he claim in verse 7? I am the living water. You see, these are people who knew the scriptures. 
And what did it say? Those who have forsaken you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth. The day before, he claimed, made a messianic claim that he was a living water. These people knew what Scripture said. I suspect he stooped down and began writing their name in the dirt. And at some point, it connected the dots with this prophecy because they had rejected their Messiah right in front of him and began to drop the stones because they rejected the fountains of living water. You guys see that? Does that mean that's what happened? Not necessarily. This is my opinion, but it's always right, so just go with it, okay? Now, let's go back. Verse 12. But you guys see, how do we know that? That is why understanding the times and the Feast of Tabernacles is so important because it gives us clues to other things, including verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Why did he say that? Are these cute sayings that we just like, we are the city on a hill. Why does he make these statements? Again, context matters. Because you may not know this, but the Feast of Tabernacles has something to do with it. So let me show you this picture. Here during the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes other times specifically, you can see that light up there. I know it's a little fuzzy. That was a menorah, if you will, candelabra, that was seven stories high, 70 feet tall. They put four of them up during the Feast of Tabernacles, and they light, light them. Because what was happening during that, that time frame is that all of these people would be wandering in, and the temple would be lit up that you could see from miles. In fact, remember, they thought this was the center of the earth. And so the entire world could see where the presence of God was because, you want to know what they called it? The light of the world. That's just a coincidence, right? But this was a crucial part of it. Go to the next picture. You can see it a little bit better. Again, these are drawings. They did not have streetlights back then, okay? But that shows you one. I mean, it shows you how tall this thing was and all the people. These were known as the light. The temple was the light of the world. What did Jesus just say? I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have light after light. This is a specific claim to the feast that's taking, that just finished, right? The Pharisees, the Jews, they all got this. We always think that these are just cute sayings. They're not. Jesus was not trying to make a quote book for y'all to go by, like calendar of the day or some of you like toilet paper words of the day or something. I don't know. Verse 13, and the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Remember, two or three witnesses is important. Jesus answered and said, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am uh, with the Father who sent me. Why is he talking about this? I'm judging you with the Father and the Son together too important he's not just making arbitrary statements it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true i am one who bears witness of myself and the father who sent me bears witness of me how through the miracles the messianic miracles then they said to him well where is your father and jesus said you know neither me nor my father if you had known me you would have known my father also these words jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple so it gives a specific place in the temple where he's at and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come and Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And the Jews said, well, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said, you are from beneath. I am from above. 
You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I am who? I am Messiah. He's made it plain to them. It's very obvious. But who's he talking to? The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the leaders that were around him. Verse 25, and they said then, well, who are you? Jesus said, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. So this isn't the first time. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. And Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. What did he just say? When you lift me up, then you will know. There will be no doubt. Verse 29, and he sent me, uh, he, he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things which please him. And he spoke these words, many believed in him. Because there's a crowd around him. Does that mean that the leaders are believing in him? Not necessarily. But he is making very bold statements. People are starting to believe in him. Verse 31, oh, and real quick, what does one have to do to be saved? Believe in him. But they didn't bow their head and close their eyes and raise their hand and say the sinner's prayer. That's because none of that's required. We just do that because we just do it. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now that's interesting. Because what is the truth freeing them of? The bonds of distruth. The lack of acceptance of Messiah. They answered him and said, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? It's a fair argument. Because at this point, this generation has never been under subjection of another nation. They are under Roman rule, but are free to live. They are not bound by the Romans. They are free to live their lives the way they were. At one point, it was like that in Egypt, too, until they got to be too big, and then Pharaoh got scared. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Free from what? Free from sin. Verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendant, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. So he's making a differentiation here between the two fathers. He's saying, you seek to kill me because my word, what is his word? It was all of Scripture, and he himself has no place in you. And they answered said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, that is God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. So, he just said something very big here. They believe their father was Abraham. But by everything they're doing, they're operating by their father, the devil. Now think about that for a moment. We are not of this world. We are in it, but not of it. We separate ourselves 
from this world. They were to be separating themselves. Their teaching and their belief system was that when Messiah came, essentially, he would be a Pharisee. And the only way to declare Messiah to be Messiah was for them to say so. Is that what Scripture said? No. Did Scripture ever say, when Messiah comes, it will be taken to a vote, and if the eyes have it, we have our Messiah. This is man-made doctrine. All of the things that they are dealing with are not scriptural doctrine. They are dealing with a lot of what they call defense laws. And I've told you about that. That, uh, who was it? Ezra. When they came back from being in bondage, created laws far enough away that it, you'd have to jump over several fences before you could break the big one and get them back into bondage again. So, he's telling them, you are of your father, the devil. This is a big deal. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So, again, the two witness thing, he speaks of himself when he tells these lies. Verse 45, but because I tell the truth and you do not believe me, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. So he's telling them, you don't listen, and you don't understand, and you won't believe what's right in front of you, because you are of your father, the devil. Verse 48, and the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, what did they think of Samaritans? They did not like each other. You did not go up there. This was a place where it was half Jews, and they believed they're all demonically possessed, and they're all messed up, and all this other stuff. Jesus said, verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, well, now we know that you have a demon, because Abraham is dead, as are the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, you shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? This is not going to end well for these guys. Verse 54. Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I will be a liar just like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And we talked about that on Wednesday night. He saw it, and he was glad. When did he see it? There's many appearances of what I believe to be Jesus during that time. Verse 57, the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. So they think he's nuts. He's lost his mind. I mean, could you put yourself in their shoes for a moment? It's not unfair stuff that they are asking. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Another claim to being God. This is a big deal. They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So who is Jesus fighting with here? It's the Pharisees, the leaders of the Sanhedrin. He is fighting with them tooth and nail. Because if they weren't in the picture, when he gets up to teach in the temple, what happens? There'd be many people believing in him. The guards would believe in him. But the Pharisees are the ones that are causing the problem. Let's go to chapter 9. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now what did I tell you? 
One of the things, the third messianic miracle was the healing of somebody born with a birth defect because only Messiah could do this. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why did they ask that question? Because they believe if you were born with a birth defect, it's because you either had sin in your life, which I don't even know how that would work. You're in, you, know, you haven't even been in this world yet. Or your parents had sinned. Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. So now you can see that he's setting this up. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Continuing on with this idea. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sin. So he went and washed and he came back seeing. Now let me stop there for a moment. We know that God heals. Fair enough. We see it all throughout Scripture. We see Jesus doing this here. This means that it is not beyond the realm of possibility for you to spit in the dirt and rub it on somebody and they be healed from it, right? Just make sure you heard from God before you do it. You laugh at that, but I've seen it all. Verse 8. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged or confused? Because the guy they know couldn't see, and this guy sees. Some said, this is he. And others said, it just looks like him. But he said, no, 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 that's me. Therefore they said, well, how are your eyes opened? He answered, said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received sight. Now stop for a minute. Did he know who Jesus was? No. Had he ever seen Jesus before? Obviously not. You know somebody who's thinking, I don't think so. But just to be clear, obviously not. What did he know about Jesus? Did he know it was Jesus standing in front of him at the moment? Probably not. Who knows? But what he knew is this dude put dirt on my face. So what's your natural thing to do? You're going to go wash it off no matter what. But he said, go to the pool of Siloam. And he washed. So they said, well, where's he at? He said, well, I don't know. So they brought him, who formerly was blind, to the Pharisees. Why did they do that? Because when a messianic miracle took place, they had to have the Pharisees look into this. This is the rules. This is why this stuff is happening. This is why they're hanging around all the time. So if you've ever asked the question, why do they keep doing this, this is why. Now it was a Sabbath. Now here's a problem. When Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Remember the debate before about healing on the Sabbath, Moses and circumcision. And the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay in my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. So there we go. Let's talk about this. He's not from God because God wouldn't break the Sabbath, which is the law, in order to heal somebody. But yet, here's a man who was blind and now he sees. So what do you do with that? That's a conundrum. It's kind of like many years ago, my daughter was ill. She had symptoms. All the symptoms pointed to mumps. All of them. She had the swollen glands the whole night. Everything pointed to mumps. And we took her to the doctor. And the doctor said, you know, well, I'm not really sure what it is. I'm like, well, it sure seems to be mumps. I mean, I'm no doctor, but I do get on the Internet. That's a joke again. And she's like, well, it can't be mumps because she had her vaccination. I'm like, well, what else is it? Well, I don't know. So could it be mumps? It can't be mumps because she's had her vaccination. 
So we're just going to completely throw mumps off the table, but you don't know what it is. How are you going to treat it? I think I'm going to treat it like mumps. Go home, get some rest and all that. Here's your sign. I mean, maybe I could have been a doctor. I don't know. So they say he's not from God. Why? Because he didn't keep the Sabbath. So they're not excited that a man born blind now sees this is a messianic miracle. They're throwing it out. It can't be. It can't be. Something's wrong here because he didn't keep the Sabbath. Others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Another fair question. Because sinners don't do the works of God. And there was division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. So what did they do? Okay, you're making this whole thing up. So he calls on his parents. And they ask them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that he's our son and we know that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. So, they weren't getting real technical here. He's a grown man, you ask him, we don't know. Why? His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, which who are we talking about? These Pharisees, these rulers, these leaders. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, being Jesus, was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So now they put parameters on, okay? You can claim he's Messiah, you want to, but you're out of the the synagogue. Synagogue is kind of like the church, but this was a big deal because this is where they went to worship. And because not everybody could get to Jerusalem, get to the temple and all that kind of stuff. This is, this is a big deal. You're basically saying you're no longer a Jew anymore. So they're scared to death to say anything. And truth is, they don't really know. They just know what his son told them. But you ask him. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said, give God the glory because we know that this man is a sinner. Why is he a sinner? Because he did this on the Sabbath. And we know what the law says. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. Here's what I know. I was blind, and now I see. Pretty simple. Fair enough? They said to him again, well, what, do you, uh, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I love this part. He answered, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? I love that. I don't know who this guy is, but when we get to heaven, I'm looking him up, and I'm hugging him. Verse 28, they reviled him. That's, that's a bad thing. He said, you're his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't even know where he's from. The man answered and said to him, why? This is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. In other words, can we be excited about this? Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of anyone who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, this is interesting. This is a man who has no formal education and obviously has never read the Scriptures. And he's educating these men who have devoted their entire lives to the reading of the Scriptures. They are God's representative at that point in time. And he is educating them. Sometimes you can be so smart, you're stupid. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, 
you were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? They cast him out. That didn't go over well. I know we've, some of us have had those conversations with people who are perceived to be significantly smarter than we and in positions of power. I know Jared got kicked out of class one time for arguing, rightfully so, with the teacher. You were nice about it, weren't you? No, he wasn't. That might have been why he got kicked out. But it doesn't go over well when you correct somebody's theology who is based on a belief system that is wrong. So, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered said, Well, who is he that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, You have both seen him, which is a new thing, and he who was talking with you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So what happens at that point? He would be what we call born again. Now, I know he didn't bow his head and close his eyes and raise his hand, but he made it in. Verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be blind, may be made blind. Now that's interesting, because who is he talking about? He's talking about the Pharisees. Those who do not see will see, those who see will be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said, are we blind also? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, you think you're right. You're lost in your sins. So, who are we dealing with here? It's the Pharisees. If the Pharisees were out of the picture, what goes on when this miracle takes place? It would be the same thing in Acts 2, right? Thousands of people, 3,000 men give their life to Christ. It was a complete transformation. People were beginning to believe, with them, believe in him, but what's going on? The Pharisees said, if you confess he's Christ, you're out of the synagogue. We have not declared his Messiah. I don't care what you say and what you think you've seen and what you think you've heard. We have to call him Messiah. We haven't believed in him. Therefore, he is not Messiah. Do you guys get that so far? Let's go to chapter 10. He's still dealing with whom? The Pharisees. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So what are we talking about? He's making an illustration. There's one way in. If you don't go in this way, this means that you are a thief and a robber, because there's nobody climbing through the window of their house unnecessarily, right? Who goes through the windows? The bad guys. Sometimes your kids, still the bad guys, and sometimes you, if you lock your keys in your house, right? Fair enough. All right. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Do you guys realize that at this point in time, and maybe still true today, I don't know, that they would name these sheep and the shepherd would know all of them by name and all they have to do is make a noise and the sheep would follow them anywhere? It's the coolest thing you've ever seen. If you ever get online and watch these videos, these shepherds will get up there and the sheep will be grazing, whatever, and they'll just make one call and all of them flock to them. If only our children were so obedient. When he, verse 4, when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. So what's he doing? He's leading his sheep. Yet, they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So the sheep of the shepherd will only follow the voice of the shepherd. If somebody calls to them, they will reject that calling and not follow him and may run away from him. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Why? Because they're blind. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. In other words, the way that you get in is through him. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, 
and the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Who is the thief here? It's the Pharisees. It's not the devil. You see, the Pharisees are stealing Messiah from them and leading them to destruction because they are not allowing the people who hear the shepherd's voice and want to follow him. They are standing in the way. Do you guys see that? We always have been taught it's the devil. It is not the devil. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Who is he talking about still? The Pharisees. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Did they care about the blind man? Nope. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. And as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And the other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Verse 17. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Now watch what happens. Therefore there was a division among the Jews because of these things. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You see, we've got to understand something. The thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. This was not the devil here. This was the teachers of Jerusalem. What happened? At some point in time, somebody had an idea. And that translated over to a group of individuals who were now in a place of power and completely affected the outcome for the nation of Israel. Because Messiah was here. Messiah was on the earth. He was right in front of them. He said everything he was supposed to do. He fulfilled every prophecy that Messiah was supposed to. And he performed the miracles that they believed that Messiah could only perform. He did everything right, and yet he was still rejected, not by the masses, but by the leaders. You guys see this group component? You see how this, how did this end up affecting Israel? Well, look at Luke chapter 19. We're almost done. Verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why are you losing it, just say to them, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent uh, went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, Well, the Lord has need of him. So they brought, the, uh, brought him to Jesus, and they threw down their clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works had, uh, they had seen. What mighty works? Saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? They're declaring him Lord. But he answered and said to them, I tell you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And now as he drew near, he being Jesus, what happens? He saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you, when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Imagine, if you will, if the thief had not stolen from them at that point. What destruction came upon them? What death came upon them? 70 A.D. was the destruction of the temple. Jesus cries because he's tore up, knowing that if they had just recognized him, if they'd just seen him, were all the signs there? It's because they chose not to believe. They were not deceived. They chose not to believe it. The people were deceived because the leaders were telling them, this isn't the Messiah. They were doing the deceiving. You guys see that? You see how powerful this is? You see how easy it is? An entire nation is in the state that it is today because of a group of individuals and what they believed. This is how it affects. Now, that's big scale, obviously. You can narrow that down because it all works the same way. The reason groups stay in the way that they are is because their ego will not allow them to humble themselves before any other idea. I mean, that's why Nicodemus went by night. He didn't want anybody else to know. But he saw something in Jesus that the other Pharisees refused to see. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at this real quick, the last verse, verse 1. This is Paul talking, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. Now, did he speak excellently? Absolutely. Did he have wisdom? Oh, my goodness, yes. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why does he make that statement? Because they're at the place they are today because their faith were in the wisdom of the Pharisees. The demonstration of power that Jesus did took place time and time again. He taught them. He healed them. He performed all the miracles. Paul's saying, I'm not trying, I'm not here as some super smart guy. And he was a super smart guy. I'm showing you the truth of what Scripture says. Like, you've got to understand something here. When the enemy moves in and he attacks, he starts individually. And then that moves into a group. And that can have dire consequences. Dire consequences. It happens on a big scale, and it happens on a small scale. It happens in churches, it happens in organizations, and it's all because we allow our ego to puff us up thinking that we've got it all figured out. That is why Jesus constantly talking about humbling yourself. You guys get that? You guys with me? Okay, we're going to close out in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that all, all the signs were there and everything was there, Lord, and we're just so grateful for what you've done. And so, Lord, we just pray that our hearts will be softened to you. And the areas where we've allowed our pride to puff us up, and the areas in which we've allowed the enemy to get a foothold, create contention, maybe in our own minds, or our houses, or maybe our workplaces, or even in our families, or whatever the case may be. 
Lord, that we'll be quick to recognize and take those thoughts captive and just walk in the love that you have poured on us. Standing in the truth of Scripture, Lord, at all times. Filtering everything through your word. That we will not be a people that are just moved by every wind of doctrine and everything that's going on and every emotion that takes place. But, Lord, we'll only be moved by the truth that you have set out for us. So, Lord, we're so eternally grateful for all that you've done and continue to do. We thank you that we have opportunity every day to show that love and compassion and mercy that you poured on us to somebody else, Lord. And I thank you that we'll walk through those doors every day. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday.